back a few months to earlier in the year where we decided, we talked about what this year is going to be like for Church Northwest. And we said that this was a year that we wanted to bring a light to the community. You guys remember that? Some of you were here for that, some of you weren't. But we've been working really hard on making this a really cool community where you feel welcome, where you feel like family, and we hope you do. Um, But we also want to make sure that we are a church that takes that hope, that light, out into the community, yeah? So that's what we're going to be focusing on this year, and we've kind of been building up to it. Now we're going to have this big push that we are going to be focusing on bringing light to the community. And it's going to happen with a, a couple of series to start us off. First, I want to have a look at this Great Commission passage. How many of you have heard of the Great Commission? A lot of you have. Uh, if you've been out of church for a while, it's probably come up. But I want to kind of take a deep dive into that over the next four weeks. Yeah, you believe we can do four weeks on three verses? You're absolutely right, we can. And so we're going to do that, um, and hopefully we'll pull out some stuff that maybe you haven't heard before. And then we're going to follow that up, because that's the sort of the why and the what of bringing light into the community. The how is what we're going to dive in after that. How are we going to go about bringing light to our communities? And that's going to be a series called um, Love Thy Neighborhood. And that's actually going to be a year-long sort of thing that we're going to be doing together as a church community. So I'm really excited about this. We've been thinking about this. We've been praying about it. We've been planning this for a very, very long time. So it's exciting to get started into it. And so it begins with one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all of the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So like I said, we've probably heard this passage before. It might be pretty familiar with us. But I want to kind of set aside your familiarity. I want to kind of dive into it with fresh eyes if we can, because there is some really amazing things within these three verses that can really change the way that we think about this. And it starts with the fact that this is set at the end of the book of Matthew, okay? This is the, excuse me, the last thing that Matthew decided he wanted to say, the last thing that he wanted to put in his gospel And he says, we're going to wrap up the story with this Great Commission. But it's hardly wrapping it up, is it? I mean, this is is kind of, you'd think it's on the downturn of the story of Jesus. You know, he's born and he rises to his fame and glory and he does all of these amazing miracles. And then we have this climactic scene around, you know, the death and the burial and then this resurrection. It's like, oh, this is this big moment in the movie. And then you have what's called descending action, right? where everything gets tied up, all of the loose ends get tied neatly in a bow, and then credits roll. Except Jesus takes the opportunity in his descending actions to actually kickstart the next story. He's like, we're going to ramp this right back up again. We're going to get started. In fact, what I just did was just the precursor to the plan that I've got. And he says, we want to go beyond the story of the resurrection. We want to go beyond the walls of Jerusalem. We want to go beyond the Jewish people and out into the world. In fact, in the book of Acts, uh, which is the sort of the next part of the story in history, 
um, Luke, the guy who wrote it, he says, my first book, which was his gospel, this is the story of what Jesus began to teach and do. The implication there, of course, being that this next book, the book of Acts, is what Jesus continued to teach and do. There's this continuing action. And he says in Acts 1a, he says, you're going to be my witnesses out into all of the different parts of the world. So we're going beyond. And I think this is true for us as well. We're already at the ends of the earth from, from their perspective. But he was telling us that we want to go beyond the story of our own faith, beyond our own personal relationship with Jesus. We want to go beyond the walls of our church community. We want to go beyond the limits of our comfort zones. Ultimately, the Great Commission is a call to go beyond ourselves to the world around us. And so we kind of get to this passage, and I want to kind of look into what Jesus is saying in these verses. But before we do, before we can get into the verses here in Matthew 28, we've got to set a little context. All right? And the context kind of goes something like this. How many of you know the most common description or nickname that Jesus gave for himself? The most common nickname, because he often called himself, not Jesus, but he called himself other things. What do you think, and it's okay if you get this answer wrong, this, this, we're, we're all friends here, but what do you think is the most common nickname or description he gave to himself? We've got Son of Man over here. Son of Man, Son of Man, correct Amundo. It is the Son of Man. You probably saw that in the subtitle of these. <laughs> the most common name that Jesus gave for himself is the Son of Man. Now, if you were a Jew living in Israel at the time and you heard him say Son of Man, your mind would immediately start racing and rewinding the tape nearly 400 years before to the book of Daniel. Now, if anyone have known me for more than 10 minutes, you know that I love Daniel. And I'm probably going to reference Daniel a lot. In fact, we did a series on Daniel not two months ago, and we took a deep dive, deep dive into his life. But there was one passage I left aside. I didn't, I didn't go there during that series because I was holding it for this. This is Daniel chapter 7. And scholars, not just me, okay, I'm not the only one obsessed with this. Scholars have pinpointed Daniel 7 as one of the most important pivotal chapters in the entire Old Testament story, all right? And here's why. If you go back to the book of Daniel and you read Daniel chapter 7, it's a very interesting little story. In fact, it's a dream. And as we mentioned in the series before, Daniel has weird dreams. You think inception dreams are weird? No, they are boring compared to the dreams that Daniel gets to have. And so he has this dream and he's dreaming and there's this big ocean and it's a churning ocean. All right, which is symbolic of chaos of the world, right? And so out of this ocean crawls out four different beasts, weird beasts. The first one is a lion, fairly normal, with an eagle's head, okay? And this lion with an eagle's head is symbolic of the nation of Babylon, which Daniel was serving at the time. And it's this majestic nation, and so this animal symbolizes the majesty of Babylon, right? And so this animal comes out, and then after that animal, another animal comes out, and this is a bear, this big hulking bear, and he goes around and he starts trampling on people and eating people. This is symbolizing the nation of Persia, which would come later. Daniel would meet them towards the end of his life. 
After that is an even weirder beast. It's a leopard, okay? Leopard's coming out of the ocean. But this leopard has four wings on its back and four heads. I haven't seen that at the zoo yet. There's some some weird cloning stuff going on in, in science at the moment, but they haven't managed this one. So they've got this weird animal that represents the kingdom of Greece, led by Je- uh, not Jason Alexander, <laughs> by Alexander the Great. All right, um, and so this is the third beast. Now the fourth beast comes out after this. Now this beast is so horrific, so big, so terrifying that Daniel doesn't have any frame of reference in his mind for what it could be. It's just called a terrifying beast. And it's got iron teeth, and it tramples everything around it, and it is eating people, and it's just causing all sorts of havoc. Now, in Daniel, we know that the dreams that he has are visions given to him by God of the time of history rolling out from his moment forward. So you've got the... Uh, Babylonians, and then you've got the Persians, and then you've got the Greeks, and then the last one is anyone? Rome, the Romans, okay? And the Romans are an empire unlike anything anyone's seen before. And they just paved a path of destruction everywhere that they went, all right? So this is like, obviously, this is symbolic of the nations that were coming, and the fact that these nations were going to do a lot of damage and a lot of harm to God's people. That's what it meant by trampling around and eating people. These are God's people, right? Now, it is at this point in the dream that something cool happens. God shows up, all right? And there's this big judgment scene where God sits on his throne and there's this great description of this mighty and powerful God. And then something very interesting happens. We read in verse 13... In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This dream is a game changer for everyone who heard it. From the moment that they heard it when they were captives in in exile in Babylon, all the way up to Jesus' day when they were subject to Rome. 400 years, during which time the Jews had about 100 years worth of independence. So 300 years, the Jewish people have been subject to to one nation or another, in fact, in that exact order that Daniel played out, the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. For 300 years, they've been oppressed, they've been beaten, they've been arrested, they've been disrespected, and they've even been killed. Think about what that would have been like to have three centuries of servitude under your belt. What it would have felt like to be that person? What does that do for who you are, for your identity as a person? What does that do for your identity as a nation? This nation that was supposed to be the nation of the Most High God is nothing but slaves to the people around them. All right? This is how they felt. But the dream gave them hope. The dream meant that this was going to end, that at some point, probably during the Roman Empire, 
God was going to show up and he was going to subdue and conquer those beasts, those nations. He was going to set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. This was, this was it. This was what they were waiting for. And the key to that dream, the key to that hope, was the Son of Man. This one person who was going to be given power and authority by God himself, and he was going to lead them to victory. And then here comes Jesus. And Jesus rocks onto the scene, and he starts doing miracles, and he starts showing power given to him by God. He starts teaching people about this kingdom of God. And most importantly of all, he gives himself the nickname Son of Man. He spends three years, three and a half years, proving to everybody that he is the Messiah that they were waiting for, the promised one, the one who is going to fix everything, take away all of their oppression, remove those nations, those beasts that were oppressing and hurting them. He was going to subdue them. He was going to conquer them. He was going to win. And then his kingdom was going to be set up, and they would live happily ever after. Yeah? Yeah? So if you think that when you're reading the Gospels and you're thinking the disciples may not have been paying very close attention to Jesus sometimes, you know how they kind of keep making mistakes and you're like, guys, focus here. They're probably a little distracted by the idea of parading through Rome as conquerors of the Roman Empire. They were probably busy making up cool militia names for their, their army that they're going to have, like Christ's Commandos or the Galilean Guerrillas or something like that. You know, They were getting ready for war. And despite the fact that Jesus kept saying strange things like, I'm going to go and die at the hands of the Romans, the disciples are convinced that this is the guy who's going to lead them into glorious battle. So now we're at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying. We feel the tension mounting. And then here comes a mob ready to come and arrest him. And the disciples are thinking, it's on. This is where it starts. And so what does Peter do? He whips out his sword and he starts swinging and slashing. And then Jesus does something weird. He says, stop that. If I wanted to start a war, I could start a war any moment I wanted to. And they're like, yeah, why haven't you? And then the next three days must have been so confusing and deflating to those disciples. Their hero, their boss, instead of being a conquering general, dies like a common criminal. With his dying breath go all of the hopes that they've built up over the last three and a half years, the hopes that have been built up for the last 400 years, They're gone. And I'm thinking, what has happened? If this son of man cannot defeat the monsters of Daniel 7, if he can't defeat these nations, who can? Where is our hope? Of course, Sunday morning came. That changed things. Jesus comes alive again, breaks out of the grave, and the disciples are ecstatic, a little confused. And happy and and not sure what's going on, right? And he comes back and he tells his disciples, meet me in Galilee on the mountain there. Why a mountain? Because historically, God makes big announcements on mountains. Ten Commandments came on a mountain. Sermon on the Mount came on a mountain. Obviously, that's kind of the name. And then this. 
And so the disciples turn up on this mountain, and there's this air of expectation hanging amongst them. And it's only now that we can start reading the Great Commission. It's only now that we can understand what's happening. Because as succinct and quotable as the Great Commission is, it does not exist in a vacuum. It does not happen by itself. I started reading in verse 18, but you can't pick up the story there. It carries with it the whole story of who Jesus is. It carries with it the entire story of the Bible. Everything hangs on this moment. It is a moment that has so much baggage it does not fit in the overhead compartments. All right, they're paying a lot of extra money for the baggage. Yeah, this is a big moment. And as the disciples sit there and they're watching Jesus, and he stands on the mountain ready to declare a message from God, he says these words. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. We rush past that verse sometimes, but we shouldn't. Because that is the linchpin verse. That is the verse that tells us everything we need to know about this moment. If it sounds familiar, it should. In Daniel 7... He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Do you think that he was maybe quoting this? And Jesus is saying, do you get it now? I am the son of man. I am this guy who is going to save Israel. I am going to conquer these nations. I am going to subdue these beasts. This is his boss moment. This is his Mufasa's roar. This is his whipping out the sword. This is his moment, his battle cry, where he says, this is it. This is the moment you've been waiting for. This is the time when the kingdom comes into this world and will never be defeated. It will never be destroyed. It will never fall into enemy hands again. You will never be enslaved ever again. This is the moment. This is Jesus' declaration of war. Now, we don't like that language. And fair enough, because Christians have used that language and done some stuff in history where they completely missed the point and they've kind of gone overboard. So I get that. And the disciples didn't understand at first what this war would mean, this invasion, this conquering the world. They were ready to do it with swords. They missed the point. But you know what? I think sometimes we miss the point a little bit too. Because I think sometimes we sort of tame down this a little bit to be like, this is the time where we go out and we we be nice to our neighbors and we share Jesus with them and, and maybe some of them will come into the family and that's good. And that's true. You won't hear me deny that. But there is a moment here that we need to not miss. In fact, you can see it in the language. Nope, that's not the verse here. I'm going to go back. I want you to see it in the language here. Right after it, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? 
And we read that to mean that we go out and we meet individual people and we bring them into God's family. And that is absolutely true and that is the methodology. But you can also read that sentence as saying, Jesus saying, go and make disciples of all the nations. Meaning, go and make every nation of the world a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Do you see that language? Do you see the Daniel 7 language there? Go and subdue and conquer all of the nations to bring them underneath the sovereign control and power of Jesus. This is an invasion plan. This is what Jesus was wanting to do. He is bringing all of the nations under his control. He is fulfilling Daniel 7. Now, the difference is the way that he's going about this and why. This is where the disciples got it wrong. This is where many times throughout history, armies have gone out in the name of Jesus and they've got it wrong. Because Jesus wants to bring every nation in the earth under his control, not for the purpose of condemnation and punishment, but for the purpose of giving them life. He knows. He knows that the world cannot control itself. He knows that the rulers of this world are going to take them away in different directions. Satan is going to push them in different directions. They're going to get themselves in trouble. They have. And they're going to find themselves in judgment against God. So his invasion plan is to bring all of those nations under his control so that he can give them mercy and life. We don't like that sort of language because when we think of people taking over the world other than like people like Pinky in the Brain, we think of people like you know, the Hitlers and, and you know, the, all of these dictators of the world, and we think, this is why you can't do it, because people will corrupt, and they will. God is not people. The reason we don't like dictatorships and people taking over the world is because in order to rule the world well, you have to have a level of integrity and wisdom that no human can ever attain. But Jesus can. The Son of Man can. And so the best thing for the world is to be under his control. That is why we have this language here. Now, why, what's the point? Why, why do we care about this? I believe that we have maybe moved past the fullness of this moment and so we take the Great Commission as a little bit of a suggestion. Like, I've got this idea for you guys. What you think about maybe sharing me with everybody around? What do you think about that? Up to you. Don't want to bother you. Don't want to kind of move you out of your comfort zone. But if you're interested, give me a call back. We'll arrange something. That's kind of how we move this moment. This is not that moment. This is the moment when the king declares his kingship and raises his army. Guess who that army is? It's us. And he is sending us out as an invasion force into the world to subdue and conquer the beasts. But not the way we think. We do so much literal subduing and conquering in the way that we are Christians throughout history. 
It's not going to happen that way, nor for the purpose of simple control. It's for the purpose of bringing life. And he says to go out and do it with love. But I don't want to miss the authority of this moment, the authority of the Son of Man. We look at Jesus like he's this kind of hippie, right? You know, and he's, he's got love for everybody and the children are playing around him and he's carrying a lamb a lot of the times, you know. And he is absolutely that. But he's also that boss. He is in charge. He's big. He's powerful. I want to read a verse from Philippians. It's this interesting little moment when they talk about Jesus. And Paul is kind of describing how Jesus humbled himself, right? Remember that? Like he humbled himself to become a human and even a human curse to be killed on a tree. Remember that? Then what happened? Therefore God exalted him where? The highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. Name being a position of power, more title than like identification. And at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow. This, is, this harkens right back to Daniel 7 as well. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is my friend. That Jesus Christ is Lord, King, in charge, to the glory of God the Father. This is the plan. This is the Great Commission. This is the moment where Jesus declares himself as king and he says, now, now that you understand who I truly am, now that you understand what I bring with me, now that you understand who you are in relation to me, I've got a job for you. I've got something for you to do. And that's going to be next week. We're going to get into that then. So come back. Come back in and, and, and be with us for the whole series. I, I encourage you to do that um, as we kind of look a little bit more at what this is happening here in the Great Commission. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord, we, um, we kind of belittle you sometimes in the way that we understand you, and you are our friend, and you are closer than a brother, and you have given so much to us. You have saved us. You have comforted us. You have treated us tenderly and with mercy. And we have mistaken that tenderness and that mercy for weakness. Lord, we are sorry for that because you are the boss. You are powerful. You are the son of man, bestowed with the power of, of God, God himself. You have all power and authority over heaven and earth. So Lord, when you speak, we listen. And when you say go, we go. Beyond what we thought we could do, beyond what we thought we were going to do, beyond the confines of our lives, beyond the confines of our church community and our personal safety nets. We go beyond where you lead us. And we thank you, Lord, that you go with us. And we look forward to hearing more about what exactly that means. It's in your name we pray. Amen.